Good morning. My name is Amy Winkle. I am the interim priest in charge, and I'm so thankful to be in the house of the Lord with each of you this morning to get to worship together. We are going to be continuing in our study of the book of Matthew this morning. We are in Matthew chapter 16. So we're going to read our text together, and then we'll pray, and then we will see what the Lord has to say to us this morning. So Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the space to sit and to hear your word. Holy Spirit, we pray for your guidance as we walk through this passage. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us to our hearts as you would choose to. We thank you, Lord, that you choose to not leave us the same as we are. So may we be open to you, God. We thank you, Lord, for your word and that it does not return void. And so, God, be with us and shape us and mold us into your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so in this part of the story, we are um, joining Jesus and his disciples as they enter Caesarea Philippi. And it's important that um, we start by talking about where they are, the location that they're in, this this place of Caesarea Philippi and what it, it represents. So it's a region that is actually north, north of Galilee, kind of off, um, away from where Jesus and his disciples have been. But it's important because of not just where it is, but also what's happened in that particular space. Um, several things of, of historical um, importance that have happened in this particular space, where this is a, a place of religious significance, where gods throughout time, different gods throughout times, have been worshipped in this particular location. Over and over and over again, different, different gods um, have, have found themselves to, um, people have gone there to, to worship them. But that's not the only thing that's happening there. More is happening there in Jesus' time. So this place has also been set up in Jesus' time to be a place where the emperor himself is also worshipped. So not only are gods worshipped there, but also the emperor himself and so what we see in this particular place is that it has religious and political meaning. That it's not just sort of a random location, but like there's meaning that happened here. There's historical meaning that makes this an important spot. And therefore, 
we have to say, like, it must be important that Jesus and his disciples have landed in this spot at this particular time. And so what is actually happening in this location matters. Um, And that Jesus um, is here in this particular spot with his disciples. And it's at this moment that he chooses to ask them these two questions. These critical questions that Jesus is putting before them. So first, Jesus asks, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And then he asks, but who do you say that I am? So let's look at the questions that Jesus is asking. First, who do people say that the Son of Man is? It's an interesting question for Jesus to ask them, right? I mean, is he concerned about what others think, or is it he really just trying to point to, like, what the disciples are hearing, what's kind of happening in their midst of, like, what people are saying about Jesus. They're seeing what Jesus is doing. They're seeing that he is, um, he's, like, he's doing lots of miracles. He's casting out demons. He's healing people. He's speaking words of truth and justice, and so there's, there's, like, people around him, the talk has started. Like, who is this? What is he up to? What's he doing? And the disciples are hearing this, right? So Jesus is asking them, what do you hear people saying about me? And it's interesting that everything that they, every person that they mention to Jesus are all prophets. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah are the other prophets. So it seems that Jesus' role as a prophet is not in question, but that when they look at the things that Jesus is doing and the things that he is saying, that that is what that's coming out of it. They're like, oh, well, he's definitely a prophet. It's interesting. It's curious that of all the things that they've seen Jesus do, this is the main role that they're seeing him play out, like in the culture at large. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He then turns to the disciples themselves to say, okay, but who do you say that I am? Those of you who have been walking with me most, those who are in the day-to-day grind with me, who've seen the miracles, who've seen the 5,000 fed, and then the 4,000 fed, who watched me walk on water, who've seen me day in and day out, lay hands on people and set them free, who do you say that I am? If you were in the disciples' place, where they are at this current moment, not knowing the full story, but just kind of what's happened up to this point, what do you think you would say? Do you think it would be clear or not? And I wonder about in your own life of walking with Jesus, knowing what you know, what you've seen, how you have experienced Jesus in your own life. Who would you say that he is? Now, our buddy Simon Peter, he has no problem stepping up, right, as usual. Um, He seems to have clarity, or at least he's not afraid to speak up and say what's on his mind. And so he says very directly, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And this is the first time in in Matthew's gospel that anyone has said those words out loud. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So this is really the climactic point of the book of Matthew, This declaration that puts all that's happened up to this point into focus and then prepares the way for what is to come as Jesus heads towards Jerusalem. Here in Caesarea Philippi, surrounded by the disciples, this is a moment of clarity. One of those moments where things kind of come into focus for a minute before you lose it again. And I wonder if that's what happened with the disciples 
that as soon as Simon Peter makes his declaration of Jesus as Messiah, can you imagine what images start popping into their brains? What they start to think, imagine what this could actually mean for Jesus and for them? And the question then becomes, were they right? Or what they, were they expecting really what Jesus was about to, be, to do and to be? So what is Jesus' response to Simon? So he blesses Simon, son of Jonah, he says. And then he does something very, very curious. He changes his name to Peter. He says, now you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So we're about to have some fun in the Bible. Are you all ready? We're going to walk through some different places in the scriptures where people's names get changed. Because it's not something that happens just once or twice. Like this is a theme that happens throughout the Bible. And it happens in such a way to say, it's time to pay attention. We need to make sure that we're paying attention to what's happening when Jesus starts, or when God starts changing names. It's because someone is at a pivotal point in their life and God is doing something. And so we want to pay attention to it. So we're going to look at a couple of examples in Scripture um, of where this has happened. So we're going to go first to Genesis 17. And to Abram. And when his name is changed to Abraham. So Abram has been walking with the Lord. He's been following after him. Um, God has been making promises to Abram. And then it gets to this point in Genesis 17. Where God is laying out covenant with Abraham. And in the midst of it, God says, I'm going to change your name. So let's read together. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and he said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you, and and will make you exceedingly numerous. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations." I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land where you are now an alien, all the land of Canaan, for perpetual holding, and I will be their God." Do you see what, what God's doing here? How he's taking Abram and he's like, Abram, which actually means um, an exalted ancestor, and saying, now you're going to be Abraham, an ancestor of the multitudes. That this is not just about Abraham. This is a turning point for him in his life, but it's pointing to something that actually is beyond him, that goes beyond him, after him, that's going to bless a whole people, that's going to bless the nations even. It's more than just about Abraham, but it is this point in his life where God is like, I'm doing something in you that's going to have lasting purpose, lasting life. Second, Jacob. We're going to go to Genesis 35. So Jacob in Genesis 32, we see like in this encounter, he has this encounter with God or an angel of God where he wrestles with God, and in the midst of it, his name gets changed. But here in 35, that name change gets fleshed out even more. And I want you to listen for where, like, there's similar language here as with what happened with Abraham. 
So Genesis 35, God said to Jacob, Arise and go up to Bethel and settle there and make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, Put away your foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come and let us go up to Bethel, that I may make an altar there to the God who answered me the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that they wore in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the tree that was near Shechem. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Pedim Aram, and he blessed him. And God said to him, listen, this sounds familiar, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So when, he was, so when he was called Israel, so then he was called Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall spring up from you. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. I will give the land to your offspring after you. So we hear that similar language of this people that's going to come from Jacob, from Israel, this people that are going to become nations and then even go out further than that. There's blessing that comes with that. There's land that comes with that. This idea of God's continual promise being fulfilled through Abraham and now through Jacob as, as Israel. So we know that this people Israel becomes a nation and they come to inhabit this land, but they don't get to stay in the land, right? Because they don't follow God as they're as they called to do. And so there comes a point in Israel's story with this nation where they are cast out of their land into for, a foreign land into Babylon where they sit in exile. But it's as they are sitting in exile, as they are sitting in this place in Babylon in a foreign country wondering what in the world, where is God and what does our future even look like? The word of the prophet comes to them in Isaiah 62 and God starts changing names again. And so let's read together, Isaiah 62. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her vindication shines out like the dawn and her salvation like a burning torch. The nations see, shall see your vindication and all the kings your glory. And you ready? And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. Verse 4, and here again, imagine they're sitting in exile. They know that Jerusalem has been burned to the ground. And this is what the Lord says to them. You shall no more be termed forsaken. And your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called Hephzibah. My delight is in her. And your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your builder marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Verse 12. They shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. The word of the Lord comes to them in the midst of exile and says, I'm going to give you a new name because we're not done here yet. There's still more to the story. 
and you're going to come back, and we're going to reestablish the city because God is still in the midst. God's still working. His story is not done yet. And so we go through these stories of the Old Testament because they all point us toward what Jesus is doing here in Matthew. It is not by accident that then Jesus comes to Peter and says, you have a new name, and on you I'm going to build my church. That is not like a coincidence. It's part of this long story that God has been telling to say, I'm going to do a new thing, and it, but it's not just about you, Peter. This is going to go out from you. This is bigger than you, and that I'm going to keep doing what I promised to do that God is doing a greater work, that as he's made Israel an, an, a nation out of obscurity and later has revived that people and that city from the ashes, this is a long heritage that God is creating and he's not done with it yet. So here in our passage this morning, God is, Jesus is establishing the church, the people of God, as he changes Peter's name. N.T. Wright says this, Jesus isn't going to build an actual city or an actual temple. He's going to build a community consisting of all those who give allegiance to him as God's anointed king. And this movement, this community, starts right there and then at Caesarea Philippi with Peter's declaration. So as we get, continue through the passage, what is it that Jesus says about this community, this church that he is going to build? He actually describes it as a people who are connected with heaven. The church has the keys of heaven and the ability to bind and to loose. Basically, this community is given authority. But this authority is not like we've seen with the religious leaders throughout the book of Matthew. It's not meant to be ones that lord over. But instead, it goes with Jesus through the cross. The authority of the church lies in what Jesus does through his death and his resurrection. And so therefore, it is through the power of the king that dies and then comes back to life that the church exists. So as we sit with this passage, we're met with some interesting questions ourselves today. As you sit where, where you are in your life and what that looks like as you, as you work it out, where you work, where you live, where you interact with other people, that's part of the question. I want us to sit in that this morning. So think about that context. But then I also want us to think about a context as us as a body, as a local expression of this church that Jesus established so long ago in this passage, and ask these similar questions of the context that we're currently in as a local community, the people that we're living among and, and, um, and witnessing among. Here's a question. Who do people say Jesus is in our own day? The people in your own life, around you, in our own context, in our cultural moment. Who do they say that Jesus is? And then the question that we have to ask ourselves is, but who do we say that he is? Who do we say that he is? And based on that, that he is our king who has died and who has rose again. 
What does that mean for the church? How do we carry that knowledge in witness to the world around us, to those in our day-to-day lives? Not to lord it over people, but to go as Jesus did, to go the way of the cross. That is our mission. That is our calling. That is our witness in our day-to-day lives and in our calling as a church, in our life together, to go the way of the cross. This whole idea of name-changing doesn't end here, but it keeps going throughout Scripture and takes us all the way to Revelation. In Revelation 2.17, it says this, Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who overcomes, I will give some of a hidden I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone. And on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. The name changes continue. And I think it's important for each one of us to ask ourselves. When that moment is for us with the Lord, have we had that moment with the Lord where he's come to us and said, you are not going to be the same from this moment on, but I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to speak to you within your innermost being and say, this is who I've created you to be. And I want you to be free enough to be able to live into that identity, free enough to live into the promises that I have made throughout time. But I also think it's a word for this body as well, this local community of the church, to say that God has already changed your name. That the Lord came along and said, you're going to be Emmanuel. And kind of put a stake in the ground to say, this is who you are. A witness to say that God is with us and among us no matter what. And I don't think that that was a mistake or a coincidence. I think it was a prophetic word that was spoken over this church, over this group of people, to say that God is with us. And that is not a thing that, like, then bolsters us up to, like, pat ourselves on the back, right? But instead calls us into something bigger, calls us into witness to this community that we are part of, to say, how do we witness to this Jesus who has changed our hearts and changed our lives in such a way that we'll never be the same? And so that it matters in this community that we exist. It matters here that we are faithful people following Jesus to the cross and beyond, to resurrection. We are a resurrected people. And therefore, we want to live like that, seeing what, not what the world sees here, but what God sees, what God wants to do in our midst and in our community. I love that we sang this morning that you healed my heart and you changed my name. Forever free, we are not the same. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's stand as we're able.
Lord, thank you for the work that you're doing in our hearts and our minds, Lord, our lives. Thank you for not leaving us the same, God. But speaking to us, speaking over us, hope and blessing. And not for our sake, God, for the sake of those around us. May we be a blessing to those around us, God. May we, may we reflect to you, Jesus. May we reflect your spirit. May you work out in us, Lord, joy and peace, peace and patience and kindness. that we might be faithful to you and all that you're doing in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.